Please open your Bibles to Gospel of Mark. And we are in the second to last chapter of this wonderful book. And really it's the climax of the whole thing. I mentioned to you back from Mark chapter 11 when King Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that donkey in that triumphal entry which is also known as the lowly entrance of the humble Messiah. That was on Palm Sunday. And so this is less than a week before he's crucified. And today we're talking about the crucifixion of King Jesus. And that means Mark spends five out of 16 chapters describing the last week of the Lord's life on this earth. This is almost one-third of the book. The events up to and including his crucifixion. And this is the culmination of the gospel story. And what a story it is, right? The story of God's shining glory, and popping out like the, the sun did uh, just this past Friday afternoon after that rain. And it's the message of Christ and him crucified. No human or angel or demon could have made up such a wondrous story or come up with such a message. The cross at Calvary, it gives us the only remedy of that age-old dilemma, the inescapable predicament that everybody finds themselves in. How can sinful people like us be acceptable to a holy God? And the cross is where, as Psalm 85.10 says, It's where God's loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. It tells us what God did, what King Jesus went through on his last hours on earth to rescue sinners from their sin. And this is the greatest of news because it gives us hope for our greatest need, which is forgiveness and salvation for our eternal souls. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says this, In a day where emphasizing the salvation of sinners is sometimes denigrated as too narrow and too unconcerned with the real needs of the world, we must not lose sight of the soteriological shape of the biblical storyline. Soteriology, the doctrines of salvation. Christ's work to save helpless, hell-bound sinners is at the heart of the gospel and is the irreducible minimum of the apostolic message of the cross. There's a reason that all four Gospels culminate with the death and resurrection of Jesus. No other biography spends a third of its time dealing with the subjects last week. But the Gospels are no ordinary gospel uh, biographies. They tell the story of victory and defeat, of triumph through tragedy. Make no mistake, the point of Jesus' life was to die, The point of his death was to rise again, and the point of his resurrection was to justify believing sinners, end quote. Amen? Amen. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe that most of us here at Faith Bible Church 
do appreciate and cherish the old rugged cross, Christ and him crucified. But for some people outside of our church and maybe some within yet, many people even, the cross is to some just a a nice piece of jewelry to wear. For others, it's an object for, for worship, kneeling and praying before it. Other superstitious types believe it has some sort of power in it. So they wear it as a necklace, or they rub it, or they carry it around to ward off evil spirits. People do that kind of stuff, you know. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the cross, the preaching of Christ and him crucified, is to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Okay? A stumbling block, in the Greek, that's, the word, that's scandalon. scandalon. It's like a trap or a snare. It's where we get the English word scandal. And it came to refer to something that trips up a person and causes them to fall. And this is the way some people see the gospel. It's an offense. To the Jews, the cross was an offense, a scandal. Okay? It was a scandal to them that, that the Messiah would be hung on a cross, crucified. They stumble over this, as many people do today, albeit for different reasons. It's offensive to many unbelievers today that all people are guilty before God, before a creator, the creator, holy, almighty God, and that they're going to receive just punishment for their crimes unless they repent and turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ, for forgiveness. They too stumble and they're repelled, they're offended by the message of the cross. The Greeks considered the, the message to be foolishness. Okay, the Greek word moriah. You know what word we get in English from that, right? Moron. Okay, the philosophically high-minded, sophisticated Greeks, they hear about a Savior dying on a cross. They consider this to be moronic foolishness. Of course, there are many today who look upon the gospel of Jesus, they look at Christians, they look at Christianity, and they think it's just foolishness, ignorant, unintelligent. But the next verse in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24 says, But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, also known as all and any believers, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Rather than being an offense or weak or foolishness, those who believe know that it's the power and wisdom of Almighty God. A few verses before, Paul writes to them, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? Amen. I'm here to say that the word of the cross is not a foolish message. It's It's not a weak message. Um, The gospel story is never going to get old. It's never going to be irrelevant, never out of touch. It's a message filled with the wonderful wisdom and almighty power of God himself. So as we hear this message today, let the word of the cross speak to your heart. If you're a believer, by God's amazing grace, we should rejoice. Rejoice in what your Savior accomplished on that cross. And if you're not saved yet, please listen. You must hear what God is saying to you today. So let's read the text. 
Mark chapter 15. Verses 16 to 32, if you're able to stand for that many verses, that would be wonderful. This is the crucifixion of King Jesus, part one, the first three hours on the cross. Next week is the last three hours, part two. And this is the word of God, starting in verse 16 of Mark, chapter 15. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, And they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Please be seated. Hard to even read that section of scripture. And I did want to tackle this whole passage uh, in one shot uh, today uh, so that we could see the, the depth, the, just the, the whole picture of man's deep and dark sinfulness. And you have your, your um, bulletin there. The deep, dark sinfulness of man is kind of just the first point, and it's basically the whole passage, virtually the entire passage. So we're going to see that and then spend a little time on um, the second part as well, which kind of goes together with everything. But we see in this message of the cross, part of the message is the deep, dark sinfulness of man. And we see it in the Roman soldiers. We see it in the callous crowd. We see it in the religious leaders. And we see it in the condemned criminals. So we're going to go through each of those. I'll I'll give you those again, but um, it's pretty self-explanatory. Verses 16 through 20, um, along with 24 and 25, the Roman soldiers. These would be Pilate's Roman guards who, after that final trial, which we looked at last week, they take him away to the praetorium. 
This is the palace. This is the court. Pilate's residence in Jerusalem. And verse 16 says that these guards called together the whole Roman cohort. The cohort. This was a garrison or a battalion. It's made up of 600 soldiers. Matthew 27 says the whole cohort gathered around him. Those bunch, hundreds of soldiers gathering around Jesus. These heathens saw him as some sort of spectacle for their sadistic entertainment as they proceed with their mockery and abuse, which I just read. Verse 17 through 19, they dress him up in a purple robe, which is the, the color of royalty. It's probably a, a military cloak belonging to one of the soldiers. The closest thing they could find resembling a, an actual king's robe. They put it on his already scourged and bloodied and beaten body. You remember, he was, he was flogged. Okay, so the flesh on his back would have been torn up torn apart, exposed. And then for the top of his head, which was also already battered and bruised when he was punched and smacked and hit in the face, before they pieced together a crown made up of sharp palm spines or some other thorny plant that was common in Israel. And they scornfully dig it onto his head, causing more pain and bleeding. And a crown that was, was supposed to symbolize Majesty and royalty is being used now as a, uh, an instrument of disgrace and shame and pain and degra- degradation. And they even give him a, a reed as a, a, a mock staff, king's staff to hold, and begin to beat him over the head with it, driving that crown of thorns further in. Their jeering contempt continues as they feign honor, sarcastically kneeling and bowing down before him, saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews, again and again, one after another, all the while continuing to spit on him as they hold this sham coronation. Verse 20, after they had mocked him. what, What shameful, degrading, demeaning treatment of any human being. much less the King of Kings and the Savior of the world. This is their very Creator, the one who gave them the hands and the mouth and the tongue and the throat and the voice and the bodies that were now being used to assault and antagonize Him. Little do they know, Philippians 2, 11, right? Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that this King Jesus is actually the King and Lord. So next they take the purple robe off him. It was, it was removed for his own clothes now because it was time to take Jesus to the cross to nail him to it. He's already severely pummeled and they lead him out to be crucified. And the horror and cruelty of all of this is already unimaginable. But it leads to verse 24. We skip down to verse 24. They crucified him. Okay, all four Gospels include those very simple words. None give any details about what crucifixion is. Okay, the people in Jesus' time were well aware of what it entailed. So Mark nor the others tell of Jesus being stripped naked and his outstretched arms being nailed to the crossbeam, which was then lifted up with the body and fastened 
to an upright vertical beam. They don't mention his feet being nailed to that beam through the instep or possibly the Achilles tendon. Sometimes they use one nail for both feet. No mention of his bloody exposed back rubbing up against the beam behind him, of the small wooden board that was added as a makeshift seat that provided some support for his weight. And this was not for relief, by the way, but rather to prolong the agony and torture. Nor the fact that breathing was only possible by pushing up with the legs and straining the arms, which caused excruciating pain, scraping his back again and again against the beam behind him. But this was necessary to avoid asphyxiation, to avoid suffocating. To quote Gilbrandt, he says, Among the horrors of a crucified man suffered were this, severe inflammation of wounds, unbearable pain of torn tendons caused by the unnatural position and bending of the body, throbbing headaches, nausea, and burning thirst, end quote. It's difficult to imagine the level of agony and pain that Jesus endured hanging on that cross. The worst pain that you can think of or that you've ever experienced, multiplied by 10,000. Maybe we're getting close to what it must have been like. This was the third hour when they nailed him to that stake, which means 9 o'clock in the morning, and he would endure this for the next six hours on Good Friday. Besides all the physical torture that it was, the most notable feature of the cross was the stigma attached to it, the stigma of disgrace, of shame. How wicked is man to come up with such humiliating uh, type, of, type of torture? Galatians 3.13, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus endured the shame, the shame, the disgrace of it. But in verse 24, it says that these Roman soldiers divided up his clothes. As inhumane as this sounds, that was the practice. The clothes of the condemned person on the cross would become the property of the executioners. So his garments, that's in plural, means there were different many parts to it, five parts in fact, the tunic which was worn next to the skin, the outer garment, the belt, the sandals, and then the head covering. And this was a a fulfillment of prophecy, right? Psalm 22, verse 18. It's a messianic psalm. There's like 15 allusions and references to the Messiah in that psalm, Psalm 22. It says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Just like it says in the Gospels, just like we read here in the Gospel of Mark. So what a a clear, sad, even tragic picture of the debased and defiled human heart. Folks, sin is ugly. I hope you're getting that from this. Sin is really ugly. And that's part of the message of the cross. Okay, we're going to see it next. Um, we'll get back to that. But the, the callous crowd is, is next, where we get this picture of man's darkened heart. Verse 29 and 30. It says, those passing by were hurling abuse at him. Okay, since this is a, a public, a very public execution, 
Whoever wanted to witness such gruesome torture, they could. And the passers-by who Mark mentions here are apparently familiar to some degree, at least, of Jesus' words, right? They quote him. They quote him, but in a very disdainful manner, hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, speaking, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, right? Jesus said this, right? Gospel of John chapter 1. They say, save yourself and come down from the cross. It doesn't seem like people could be that heartless and cruel to save someone who's writhing in agony, who's being tortured in public, naked, bloodied and beaten. Um, It doesn't seem like people could be that depraved, but here it is. For us to, to see so clearly today, a picture of man's sinful nature, grotesque in its hatred towards God, in its hatred towards Jesus, Messiah. And it's ironic, once again, uh, almost incomprehensible. Okay, some of those passers-by probably were some who were less than a week ago hailing him as king. Salvation, Hosanna, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So next we're going to see the religious leaders, verse 31 and 32. And these men, the schemers who initiated Jesus' execution, it says there, in the same way, the chief priests also, the Sadducees, along with the scribes, some who were Pharisees, were mocking him among themselves. Hey, they, were, they were there to witness this hated man be tortured to death. And so in the same way as the crowd... They're saying, let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Hard to to fathom. Mind you, remember, I I feel like I'm emphasizing this um, repeatedly, but these are supposed to be spiritual men. They're supposed to be godly people. They are the, the teachers of God's word who are acting and thinking in such a despicably evil manner, mocking the fact that Jesus saved others. And did you notice that? He saved others. They're acknowledging that. They, they, they never denied his miracles. They couldn't. And yet, instead of being happy about those who were healed by Jesus, they ridicule the healer for not being able to get himself down from the cross and save himself. Hey, this, this supposed Messiah and this king of Israel, like, prove it by coming down from there. Then we'll believe in you. As if. I remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 12, verse 34 to 37. And he's speaking particularly of the Pharisees here. And he says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so, listen to the words of priests, the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. 
saying among themselves, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. Ha! Let this Christ, the King, King of Israel, come down from that cross so that we might see and believe. They're going to be judged by their words, as everyone will be. And this gives us yet another clear picture of the deep, dark recesses of the sinfulness of man's heart. It starts in the heart and it comes out in our words. Unbelievers' hearts, wicked and deceitful, who can know it? Lastly, on this first point, verses 27, 28, and the last part of 32, the condemned criminals, the condemned criminals, they crucified two robbers with him. And again, I explained last week, robber. Okay, this is a violent rebel who, who plunders as he steals, who takes by force, not just a thief or a burglar. Okay, those, those types were not crucified. These ones were like Barabbas, the insurrectionist, terrorist type. Okay, possibly murderers. Maybe they were even partners with, with Barabbas. Okay, so the thief on the cross, as we hear that phrase, I, I just want us to have a, a correct understanding of that. Okay, we should understand it correctly, not, not just a house burglar. Okay, this is a robber, a plunderer, a violent person committing crimes warranting crucifixion. And so Jesus in this, is in the center of these two, one on his right, one on his left. And this is scripture fulfilled, isn't it? Isaiah 53:12 says that he would be numbered with the transgressors, as Mark says here, as John says as well. And verse 32, and this is where we're getting the condemned criminals, at the, the last sentence of our passage today says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. They're doing the same from their pathetic position in hurling insults at Jesus. Hey, the fact that they were both, both of these thieves, these robbers, these criminals, they were both initially doing this along with everybody else. Doesn't it make the one thief's turnaround uh, that much more amazing? Isn't it, mustn't it be the, the power of God to convict a sinner of his guilt, even as he's committing such a, a heinous, like, incomprehensible sin? Like, he's, he's being crucified and insulting the one who's, who's next to him. Um, and it's not just one, but it's the one Son of God as he's dying in the last hours of his life on a cross. Truly, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, right? It's the gift of God. That repentant thief's salvation and his faith and even his repentance was, was not a work of himself. It was the power and gift and work of God. It could be only that. There's an interesting quote from Adrian Rogers. He writes, quote, There were three of them there that day. Three crosses. One of those men on the cross died in his sin and went to hell. Another man died to his sin and went to heaven because of the middle man who died for both. Three crosses, a cross of redemption, a cross of rejection, and a cross of reception. End quote. So uh, just, I heard Alistair Begg uh, preach on this uh, a while back. And 
he was talking about the, the repentant thief who showed up in heaven and they asked him, how did you get here? And the only thing that he could say is, because, well, the, the man in the middle said, said I could be here. He, he justified me. He said I was forgiven. He accepted me. And that's the only reason I'm here, because he said I could be here. And so all of these people, the Roman soldiers, the callous crowd, the religious leaders, and these condemned criminals, all treating King Jesus, the creator of the universe, the creator of them, the creator of all of us, with such contempt and mockery, toying with him, how dare they, abusing him, insolent and arrogant beyond, beyond imagination. What utter disdain both these Gentiles and Jews had for the Messiah. What debased, dark, deep sinfulness is on full, clear display in this passage of Scripture. Doesn't it remind you of that passage that we know also well, but I'll read anyway, Romans 3:10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is exactly what we see as we look at the cross. This is part of the message of the cross. And this is part of the truth of our own hearts before we were saved. We are no longer defined by our once fallen and hopeless and unbelieving sinful flesh and and nature. We are now defined by who we are, saved, forgiven, given a new heart and new life and new desires in Christ. But once again, we see that the cross shows us the ultimate manifestation, the ultimate expression of the depravity of sinful, unbelieving human nature. But that leads us to our second point. And the message of the cross is not only that, because that's really bad news, but the good news is Christ himself, right? The sinless suffering and submission of the Son of Man. The sinless suffering and submission of the Son of Man. And uh, perhaps some of you noticed when I read the text before, all the hymns, H-I-M, they threw out almost every single verse of this passage multiple times, right? The soldiers took him away. Verse 17, they dressed him and they put it on him. They began to acclaim him. They kept beating his head, another pronoun, spitting on him, kneeling, bowing before him. Verse 20, they mocked him. Verse 20, they led him out to crucify him. Okay, on and on, right? Um, the point of just bringing all that out is, is Jesus, the sinless, suffering, sacrificial servant. He's always the object of the action. Okay, always the object receiving the action, the verbs in every single one. Jesus was taking all of it. Okay, virtually every verb is one of 
one of abuse or derision or taunting or hatred or scorn or attack. And and so that, that brings us to verse 21. And it says, They pressed into service a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. And I, I think this is just such a, a genuine, touching picture of Jesus' full humanity. Hey, I, I don't know why else it's in there except for the reality of uh, what's happening. But it's just one little verse here that, that Mark um, puts in. And uh, it's perhaps a, a dose of reality for Mark's readers and for us. King Jesus is, is not just this stoic, emotionless, robotic deity who just goes through all of this without any effect on him. No. As if he just rolls with the punches because, after all, he knew what was coming. As if he, he feels nothing. He's impenetrable. He's impassable. He's unfeeling. No. No. Actually, he's so weakened at this point that he can't even take one more step of that 650-foot journey uh, to the cross, to Golgotha, with that 110-pound beam on his back. Hey, the physical, the emotional, the mental, the psychological stress and pounding has taken its toll. And so, verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. Hey, the, the Roman soldiers nabbed this man, Simon, after seeing Jesus, is too exhausted, too weakened to carry the cross to the place where he's going to be crucified. So Simon is from this North African city called Cyrene, apparently on his way to Jerusalem. Mark says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And, you know, Romans 16:13 uh, mentions a man named Rufus. It says, Greet, Paul writes, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. And so some have said that this is evidence of Mark's connection with the church at Rome. And, and so uh, Simon uh, must have been a believer, and his family was all believers, and they were all strong believers of Christ. Um, I don't know. I, I just I don't know that there's a whole lot of uh, evidence for that. But in any case, in any case, Luke 23 gives us a, an interesting thing that happens here, which I just want to mention quickly. Luke 23, verses 27 to 31. And as Jesus was pressing on toward the cross, at some point, he gave a a final public message. Luke 23, verse 37. Sorry, 27. It says, And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. Verse 28, but Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So basically, this is a solemn, prophetic warning of the destruction that's coming to the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Remember A.D. 70, the the destruction by Rome, led by Titus, the the Roman um, general. And as we talked about back in Mark chapter 13, it's possibly, likely even, 
uh, a preview or a precursor or a, a, a glimpse of the greater tribulation that's going to come at the end of the age. And so Jesus gives this final warning as he's on his way to the cross. just wanted to insert that detail. So back to Mark chapter 15, verse 22. It says, They brought him to the, the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And so in Latin, that's Calvarius, which is where we get the English word Calvary, which means place of a skull as well. Um, so it might have been a, a skull-shaped hill or just part of the land, or it could have been called that because of all the crucifixions that happened there and the, the skulls that, that, that mounted up. And the exact location of this site is not certain today. There's two locations that people think are possible. I won't go into the details of that. But wherever it was exactly, most likely it was outside the city gates along a well-traveled road. So travelers could see the agony of people who were being crucified, and this would strike fear into their hearts not to commit any crimes that, were, that would warrant uh, such a horrifying death. So this event at Calvary, Jesus Christ crucified, it's, it's the climax of the story. In fact, it's the climax of the ages. It's the, the hinge of the vast forever, as one person put it. It's all the ages preceding it, all the years and millennia preceding it, looked forward to it. And all eternity in the future will look back at it. To quote Eric Sauer, the the author Eric Sauer, he wrote this, Of all times, it is the turning point. Of all love, it is the highest point. And of all salvation, it is the starting point. And of all worship, it is the central point. End quote. So look at verse 23 as we continue to see Jesus more clearly today. The sinless, suffering, submitted servant. Verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. This myrrh or gall refers to something bitter. It's a narcotic, a kind of numbing agent. And it was a Jewish custom to administer this pain-deadening medication. Okay, mixed with wine. Psalm 31.6, Proverbs 31.6 says something to that effect. So some people have surmised that there was uh, some Jewish women who came and, and offered it to Jesus. But again, I don't see that anywhere in Mark or the, the, the other Gospels or anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, I agree with the commentator Lenski, who holds that the Roman soldiers offered, it was actually the Roman soldiers because it says they, they offered, um, they gave him that, but not as an act of mercy. Okay? Like all of a sudden they're being merciful to him and they're giving him this, this pain-deadening drug. But likely it was done to make their labor of crucifying easier. It, that makes more sense to me. But in any case, Jesus tastes it and he won't, he won't drink it. Okay? He was determined to meet his suffering in full control of his senses. And he was resolved to drink that bitter cup of suffering, every last drop, consciously, to his last breath, voluntarily drinking the cup that the Father gave to him. He wanted his faculties to be in place. Why? Well, one reason would have been to, to be able to minister to that thief, that robber, that criminal on the cross next to him as he's dying. 
as well as to his mother Mary and disciple John in that moving scene where he basically assigns John the care of his mother. And this was all part of the perfect, sinless suffering and submission of our Lord. This is all part of the message of the cross. So that's good news, isn't it? Why would Jesus endure such a torturous, agonizing death? There's one answer. okay? His love for his lost sheep, for the glory of God. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. The cross is not just a trinket to be worn thoughtlessly. It's not some object of good vibes or positive energy. It's not an idol to be hung in our homes or anywhere else to be worshipped. It's a symbol of God's profound love for sinners, for us. That's why, dear Faith Bible Church, we have a huge cross adorning the front of our church because we want to be reminded and we want to tell the world of God's deep, profound love and grace for sinners. Romans 5, right? For a while we were still helpless. Christ, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this was a sinless, perfect suffering and submission, was it not? 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? For he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4.15, our benediction a couple Sundays ago as Pastor Bill preached from Hebrews chapter 5. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all points, every year as we are, and yet without sin. Every single moment, every single minute, every single hour on that cross, everything leading up to the cross, all the abuse, all the scorn, all the mocking, all the ridicule, all the arrogance, insults, and proud mocking, Jesus never sinned once. Not once. Isaiah 50, verse 6. Isaiah 50, verse 6. And by the way, this is part of one of the servant songs that's found in the book of Isaiah. And uh, this is like a, the suffering Messiah's soliloquy, or part of it. Verse 6 in Isaiah 15. It says, I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Isaiah 53, verse 3, again, prophesied hundreds of years before this treatment that the Messiah was to receive. He would be despised. He would be hated, treated as worthless, treated as if he was the despicable one, and forsaken of men, right? Abandonment, abandoned by everyone. He's all alone on that cross. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew it. He knew it intimately. And like one from whom men hide their face, face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. We did not esteem the king of kings to be worthy of respect. He was considered insignificant. You must understand that treating God, treating Jesus as if he's not worthy of our thoughts or our, our time 
or worthy of our honor or worship or respect or love or affection or attention. That, that's basically the, the worst sin that we can commit. In treating God of the universe as if he doesn't matter and rejecting him. Through all of that, he sinned not. He was willing to endure all the pain, all the insults, all the shame, all on our account. He perfectly and sinlessly submitted himself to the will of the Father. Once again, our scripture reading. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can I remind you of some more precious, beautiful gospel verses about Jesus' submission to the Father? John 4, verse 34, right? He said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John chapter 10, verse 11, what does he say? He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. So in verse 17, he says, For the, the Father, for this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life. I want you to pay attention that he did this perfectly. He did this sinlessly. He he did not succumb to any temptations. And there were, uh, in every moment, temptation. But he did it. He did it sinlessly. Hebrews 7, verse 26 and 27. Listen. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those other high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews seven twenty six twenty seven. 27 Listen, the, the only way that he, his sacrifice could be acceptable to God the Father is, is that he went through all of it without any sin, okay, without any any reviling, without any unrighteous anger, without any insults in his own mouth of hatred, of malice towards these people, these despicable, darkened sinners. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the perfectly righteous, the perfectly just Christ. So, we certainly must glory in the message of the cross, in the cross of Christ. We should praise him for what he did for us. We should say, along with Paul in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is the doorway unto eternal life for everyone who believes and knows the Lord Jesus as Savior. So, I want to uh, submit to you just a a few applications. Um, First, I mentioned it last week, but I want to say it again. He's our example in suffering. He's our example in suffering. And especially suffering for being Christians. When people persecute us or offend us, or insult us, or say false things about us. First Peter 2, again, says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Uh, I've been challenged in recent days, just in different situations, about this. And uh, truly, this um, is speaking to my own heart. First Peter 4, the next chapter, or a couple chapters, let me encourage you and remind you. Verse, chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or or like for some sin, right? He says in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Begins with us first. And then he says in verse 19, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right just like Jesus did, right? Who kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. God knows. God cares. God is with us. He will not forsake us. He's certainly sovereign over all things good and bad. And so he's our example. And Uh, I want to just encourage you that he's not only our example, but he's our inspiration. He's my inspiration. He's my strength. I can't do it on my own. Hebrews 2, verse 17 and 18. says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In things pertaining to God, listen, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And let that be encouragement. Let that be inspiration for you today who are maybe suffering or under persecution or under attack. And um, we need this. We need this today. So the the other very quick application I want to make here, and I'd like you to make, is one of sacrifice. Okay, what sins will we give up since Jesus died for every last one of our sins? Um, and he suffered for them. He suffered greatly, as we've seen. Uh, no pet sins, dear, dear Faith Bible Church. No pet habitual sins that we just tuck away and into the recess of our heart and we allow them. No, I just I give up. I give up. I've been dealing with this too long, and it's just God knows, and, you know, I just... No, this denigrates the price Jesus paid on the cross to wipe out our debt, to cancel the debt, certificate of debt that was decreed against us, which was hostile to us. He wiped it away by nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2. It diminishes the power of the work that Jesus accomplished on that cross. And so the question is, are we ready to give up? All our sins, all of our sins, as we examine our lives, examine our hearts. 
Are we willing to sacrifice every last one of them? And let me encourage you once again with that. Okay? There's no sin that's too strong for believers to overcome. There's no sin that's too strong for believers to overcome. We have the way to victory and the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Okay? Um, perfect perfection is the last phase of our sanctification, which happens um, in glory in heaven when we're with him. But God promises to help us and to be with us as we battle. So let me very briefly, and let us very briefly look back at verse 26 here, because I don't want to skip any verses. And verse 26 says, The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And um, Pilate is the one who ordered this inscription. And this is what was posted uh, on the people who were being crucified as describing the crimes that they committed, that, that they're guilty of, supposedly. And it seems like this was Pilate merely antagonizing the Jewish leaders who were just giving him so much trouble, okay, trolling them, if you will, in contemporary lingo. And when the leaders see this, they're outraged. Okay, John tells us about this, and they tell him to change the wording of it, Right? They tell Pilate, put that he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answers them, I have written what I have written. So putting all four of the Gospels together, which kind of gives different details, um, in the end it reads this combined. It says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And that's true. He is the king of the Jews. But he's also, as we saw last week, the king of all kings. 1 Timothy 6.15, read Revelation. And the question is, is he your king? Well, as we wrap up here, John the Baptist announced in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From even before his birth, the mission of Jesus was, was clear, right? As the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus understood that mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. He says in Mark 10:45, verse we know well, right? Which is like the, the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the message of the cross. It's the message of how depraved, darkened sinners with blackened hearts can be forgiven and given a new heart that's washed by the blood of Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. Sin is ugly, as I said before. It's ugly. But the Savior is beautiful. A fairest Lord Jesus, indeed. A recent Paul Washer impassioned sermon that some of you may have heard. Um, he, he mentions that, that some people ask, how can one man's sacrifice, a one man's hanging on a cross for a few hours, a one man's death atone for the sins of men? And, and they say atone for the sins of a countless multitude of sinners. How can one 
man's death. Hang on, just for a few hours, hang on the cross. Atone for all the sins of a multitude of sinners, countless multitude. And he says, it's because that one man is worth more, is worth more than all of them combined. And as we see the, the Roman soldiers and the callous crowd and the religious leaders and the condemned criminals and we consider ourselves and we consider the sinfulness of all man's hearts, we understand that Jesus is worth far more than all of us combined. So I'm going to close with this. And uh, there's a story of a, a missionary who was speaking to a remote tribe of people who had never heard about the life of Jesus Christ. And seated in the front row, listening intently to all the missionary had to say, was the chief of that tribe. And as the story of Jesus came to its climax, the chief heard how Christ was cruelly crucified, as we've heard this morning. He could restrain himself no longer. He jumped up and cried, Stop! Take him down from that cross. I belong there, not him. (laughs) This man had grasped the meaning of the gospel. He understood that he was a sinner and that Christ was the sinless one. As you consider that scene that we've seen, okay, the Son of God hanging on the cross in agony, blood flowing out of his wounds, can you say from your heart, I belong there? That should have been me. And go one step further with that. I invite anyone who has not placed their faith in Christ to trust in him now, today as your personal Savior, so that you can say with the Apostle Paul and all of us believers, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus took our place, dear friends. He died as our substitute. And because he bore the penalty for our sins, he's opened the way for us to be reconciled, to be brought into a right relationship with our Maker, with God, our Creator. So if you place your faith in him as your personal Lord, believing that he's been raised from the dead, he died for your sins, God will identify you with Christ and give you his righteousness. Look upon you as if you had not sinned as he places your blame upon his own son. We're going to look at that more next week, but may we all this morning be able to say, I belong there. And praise Jesus for taking our place. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for giving us this word once again, the message of the cross, the gospel message of Christ and him crucified. What precious good news this is, God, because there's no other way, no other gospel that can rescue us, that can give us the way into eternal life, but through the cross of Christ. So I pray, Lord, that our hearts have been encouraged and that we would, even as believers, seek to apply this to um, our, our daily living and our current situations and our situations in the future. Uh, may we look to Christ as our example and our inspiration. And may those who don't know him submit and turn to him, surrender their lives to him, And trust Jesus alone for the salvation of their souls. Thank you, God, for being so gracious and loving toward even us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.